going to explore some of these generational things that happen. We're also going to um, take a look at what happens from one generation to the next. I mean, because Manasseh is uh, very different than his predecessor. And we've been talking about Hezekiah, and there's, there's five areas that we're going to be looking at. The five areas, we're going to be looking at Manasseh's spiritual heritage. We're going to be looking at his moral failure. And then God's national judgment, the legacy of sin that Manasseh leaves behind. But then we're also going to take a look at God's relenting grace. So these are the five areas we're going to look at. Now, we're going to start with understanding that our spiritual heritage is not enough. Our spiritual heritage is not enough. And as I think about Manasseh, I think about my own uh, relationship with my dad before he passed away. And I think about how he lived and what he did. And, you know, there are some things he was amazing at and some things not as amazing at. But uh, one thing that always astounded me as a kid is that he could, he could invite a group of people, and people would come from all over to go on camping trips, climbing trips, caving trips. We would do all these different things. Some of them are pretty dangerous. Um, my dad would take a whole group up. We'd go climbing. And uh, as, his, as his kid, it was kind of fun, right? Like, you get to see him free climb up to some crazy location, and you're thinking, that looks really scary, and, and it is. Um, and then he'll tie off and then get the ropes all set up for everyone else, and then they get to climb with ropes, which definitely is the preferred way in my mind. And uh, we'd go caving, and we'd go through this cave, and, um, you know, you, you go through the cave, and one of the things you very quickly realize is if you get lost in a cave, it could be a really bad situation. And my dad would do things that were funny, like he would give everyone a map of a completely different cave and then have them jot where they thought they were the whole time through, not only to tell them when they came out, he gave them the wrong map. But as it comes to you know, how this worked out and moving from him to me, <clears throat> these things didn't just pass along. I didn't magically learn knots. I didn't gain the skill that he had at free climbing. Uh, I just want to tell you now, if I ever invite you climbing, the answer probably should be no if I'm leaving. Because when, when I come back, people are going to be like, I thought you left with five people. And I'll be like, yeah, uh, there's a little bit less than that now, but other than a few mishaps along the way, we did fine. See, this idea of things just magically transferring from one generation to another. We get that concept when it comes to some things like skills, but for some reason, when it comes to spiritual things, we think that the spiritual heritage that we bring or, or that our parents bring somehow naturally conveys to us, don't we? And it's extraordinary to me that when we look at spiritual heritage, and we look at the young Manasseh, he had everything going for him. His dad, Hezekiah, is one of only three kings that is described as being in the pattern of David. And David, as you know, was a man after God's own heart. So this is, this is definitely what you want to see, right? You want to be, 
You want to be told that you're a man or a woman after God's own heart. So his dad does all these really cool things. As you guys remember, he took down the Asherah poles. He took down the altars. He cast out all the idols. He cleaned house. And he made sure that Yahweh was known as the one true, holy, and righteous God that everyone is to follow. And then you say, yeah, okay, but what was his mom like? Well, let's read this text together, and you can follow with me. And we're going, to, we're going to unpack this a little bit more. So in 2 Kings 21, 1 through 4, Manasseh was 12 years old. And when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. So uh, we, I, I did some work trying to figure out who the heck is Hephzibah. Well, it turns out there's actually two references to Hephzibah. One is here, and one is in Isaiah. Because surely, somewhere, I mean, Hezekiah was such a good guy, the only real clue that we get is maybe something went wrong here. So I look up Hephzibah, which is just a cool name to say. If you want to say that under your breath, I'll understand. It's like guacamole. If you're, it's just fun to say. So Hephzibah turns out to also show up in Isaiah 62. In Jewish history points out that Hephzibah, his mom, was likely the daughter of Isaiah the prophet. So, on both sides, he's doing okay. He's got Hezekiah, who's one of, we're going to now put him in the top four kings. He's one of top four kings. And then we've got Hephzibah, who's the daughter of Isaiah. He's got some good stock, does he not? He's got the genes going for him. So how in the world does this young Manasseh take such a wildly different turn? And then you think, well, maybe he didn't get enough dad time. Well, the general consensus is he probably actually kind of co-regent for a while with his dad. He would have actually been under his tutelage, so it wasn't all done in a vacuum. And yet somehow it didn't work out. And I, and I land here, and I'm spending a lot of time here, because I think there is this um, misconceived notion that righteousness or sin transfers from one generation to another. And there is to a certain extent. So theologically, there is kind of this disease of sin, right? There's this disease of sin. Adam introduced sin, and then out of that, death comes to all mankind. But then there are acts of sin, and the acts of sin, biblically, theologically, basically each person is held to account. Here's where this applies for you and I. If you grew up in a super spiritual home and mom and dad were amazing, 
and they shared the gospel and they led thousands to Christ, which I don't know very many people who could hold that title, but let's say they did that. It's not enough. You have to make that yours. And if you are a parent and you have a child that has gone off the beaten path, maybe they've abandoned their faith, maybe they are sowing their oats or whatever you want to call it, it's not all on you. Because our spiritual heritage is not enough. Our spiritual heritage is not enough. Well, what about moral lapses? What, what exactly happened in Manasseh's life? What changed the script? Well, our moral lapses are not isolated. Our moral lapses are not isolated. Let's read uh, 2 Kings 21, 5 through 7. And he built altars for all the host of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums, and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David, and to Solomon his son, in this house, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So you have this young king. He comes in. He reigns for 55 years. That's a long time. 55 years. God gives him quite the long leash. And he manages in that 55 years to undo just about every good thing that his father has done. His dad took out the pagan altars. He brought them back. His dad took out the Asherah. He brought them back. We even get hints that new things are going on. When it talks about, and, uh, and he built altars for the host of heaven, this is astrological worship. This is great, right? This is the latest fad now. The Babylonians are going to be the ones that are most attributed to this astrological worship. So our young Manasseh up here earlier, he talked about being sympathetic sympathizing to, uh, to, to the neighboring people. See, isn't, isn't it enough to, to just say we're all going to get along? No, no, it's not enough. We're going to go one step further. We also need to believe the same things. This is really important. You know, our neighbors maybe wouldn't be so hostile towards us if we just accept what they believe. Maybe our um, maybe our political differences wouldn't be so divisive if we just accept everything we need to accept. See, Manasseh wanted to, he wanted to sympathize. So he even introduced this astrological worship. And then there's this, there's these two words here where it talks about in the two courts It'd be real easy to read over that and not ask, well, what is he talking about with the two courts of the house of the Lord? So the, the two courts here would have been an inner court and an outside court. And the inside court is for priests. 
The inside court is for priests, and the outside court is going to be for all the commoners. Now, here's what's interesting. He's actually bringing this sin right into God's place. And the people seem to be okay with this. Now, this, this brings up an interesting point of, I think our idea of sin is confused. See, we think our moral lapses are isolated, but our moral lapses are not isolated. Our moral lapses are not isolated. See, I think we tend to think of sin like this. Uh, I'm, I'm, at a, I'm at a baseball game, pitcher's gonna throw the pitch, and I'm gonna try to hit that ball. And when I hit it, and I get a foul ball, we think, that's sin. Oops, do over, next pitch please. I hit the next one, and maybe it's a strike, maybe I get a first base hit, maybe I get another foul. But we think of sin in this kind of individualistic, each act, each thing I do is either good or bad. I, I really don't think that is a healthy way to view sin. How many of you have seen the movie Gravity? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume that the three hands in the room is because at least another 20 of you don't want to fess up to a movie that only had one actor and somehow we all watched. Okay, so gravity is an interesting uh, depiction of what could happen in space if just one thing goes wrong. There's a missile fired to blow up a satellite, a military satellite, and when and who does it or how it happens, all of that is not really the main point of the story, but there are pieces of debris from this satellite just flying through space. And when I say flying, they're moving at 20,000 20, plus miles an hour. Now, to put that in perspective, something flying 20,000 miles an hour is more than something like 12, 13, somebody can do the math for me, uh, uh, times the speed of sound. This is very, very fast. So when these little pieces of debris are flying all over, they are destroying anything in its path. It's destroying other satellites, other communication satellites. Now there's a group of astronauts on an ex on Explorer, which looks like kind of like a space shuttle, and, and all of this debris is coming, and it tears off an arm, and it kills a couple of the astronauts. This ricocheting effect is, I think, a better image of sin. See, when that initial sin hits and it reverberates and its destructive power is spreading out in all directions, I think this is a better view of sin. See, Manasseh, he is not only doing evil himself, he's leading. And as a leader, he's impacting other people. He's impacting them in the house of God. He's impacting them in society. He's impacting them wherever he goes. And this brings another, another key point that we need to recognize, because some of you are thinking, well, good thing I'm not a king or a president or a politician. I am a firm believer that everyone in this room is someone's hero. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You're someone's hero. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to do everything right. But that means even if you do something wrong, they're going to look up to that, and they're going to want to internalize that. 
So Manasseh might be king, but you and I have our own sphere of influence, don't we? And the things that we do right and the things we do wrong impact other people. Our moral lapses are not isolated. Now, end comes national judgment. So it's a little bit of a different text than some of the other kings that we can explore where we get a full narrative. So in, in historical theological narrative, it's just fun to say that, historical theological narrative, there's normally kind of a storyline and a climax, that's your main takeaway, and then some kind of resolution. Now, in this section, we actually don't get much of a narrative. It's a summary section on Manasseh. It's actually a judgment text. I think it should be its own class of genre because it works differently. It is a summary of life events. Uh, I, in this instance, I started to think about this as a court case and I realized as we're reading through this that this is a lot like you would expect in court and I'll, I'll dissect it in a moment. In 2 Kings 21, 8 through 18, 2 Kings 21, 8 through 18. And it says, And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, the king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides the sin, that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Now, when we talk about, what, what is he referring to about all this blood? Well, in the previous section, we learned about all the different uh, sins that he had done, and one of those was sacrificing his own kid. See, he set up a precedent. I think uh, the shedding of all the blood and sacrificing his own kid on an altar to a foreign god in its own right would have been evil. But this here, I think, shows a pattern. And that pattern actually was pervasive and went through the whole 
land, I think what was happening is that not only did he sacrifice his kids, but others did too. We do this today. And I want to be very sensitive in talking about this. We don't sacrifice kids to gods. But I'm sure we have our own reasons of why abortion should be allowed or prevalent. We have to be very, very careful here. Because I recognize in a room of this size, there's likely some who have actually gone through this. And I want you to know that God's grace and forgiveness can reach anywhere and can forgive as far as the east from the west. But I cannot look at a passage like this that talks about the evil of child sacrifice and raises it up to this level of, here's an example of all the crazy bad stuff this king did and ignore things that are happening in our own society today. And we need to be careful. We need to be a voice against that. Manasseh was a voice for it. In this judgment text, what God does is he kind of outlines a structure for us. See, first he cites the law. In verse 8, I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave to their fathers if... Only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. So um, first thing he does is he kind of unpacks what is it that Manasseh violated. Now this actually is sort of a summary text. There's actually several different versions of this, whether you're in, in Deuteronomy or in Exodus and you're looking at the law and how it's Prescribed, and you're looking at the promises of God. And then after the cited law, here's the verdict. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray. Now there's two parts to this, and I don't want to miss either one. Manasseh was evil. And he led them So here's the trick. We want to think of Manasseh as the sole evil reigning thing, but moral lapses don't happen in isolation, do they? See, the people are following. God is not going to judge a nation just because of a king. But when the king plus the people are bad, or our leadership and the people have gone off base. It's fair game. Then he gives the scope and the verdict. Now there's several things he does in verses 10 through 15. Uh, He compares them to the Amorites. This is a group of people that were taken out initially to even give the promised land. He also compares them to Samaria. This would have been 
a reference most likely to Israel and all that was happening there and how they were judged. And specifically brings up the house of Ahab, considered the most evil king of Israel. And God gives two illustrations to drive home the point. He wants to make sure you get it. This is what I, God, am going to do. You see these dirty dishes? This is your evil sin mess. It's all piled into the sink. You've got a whole pile of dirty dishes. I am going to wipe them clean. He's washing the dishes. He's going to get rid of the grit, the muck, the sin. He is going to turn it upside down and rinse it. See, God's judgment almost always is a reset. Now, there will become, or there will come a time in history where it's arguably kind of the end, story over. But even then, it appears to be as a reset because it'll be with a new king, Jesus Christ, on the throne, leading the way things should have been done all along. The second illustration that is given here is the idea of a plumb line. So a plumb line is this string with a weight at the bottom of it. And you would put it, it's, it's basically for seeing if something is vertically true. So you put the line down and then you can have a wall next to it that you might be building up and you want to make sure it's, it's straight. It's also making sure that you can identify where the center of gravity is. And this plumb line is designed to make sure you can true everything up, like I said. Now, he's using this illustration because he wants everyone to know that this plumb line is how he's going to true everything up. It's God's law. But what's included in what's going to be trued up is a little disturbing. It's a little disturbing because part of what he's going to true up, he uses this phrase, the remnant. I want you to catch this. In verse 14, it says, And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all of their enemies. I can't tell you how much that phrase vexed me. Because I'm, the remnant is a term typically used of God's faithful. The remnant is typically used of those who are following God faithfully. And when I read, he will forsake the remnant, I think, wait, that can't be right. How would you forsake the remnant? What does that mean? And it says, and give them into the hand of their enemies. Now, this brings up the key phrase here, which is national judgment impacts everyone. National judgment impacts everyone. Now, it's possible that remnant here is just a technical term to describe those who came from the generation who had survived from Israel being taken out by Assyria. As you guys may remember that was brought up in some sermons past, that Assyria took out Israel. And there were probably some who fleed to Judah. And of that generation, they could be considered the remnant. Or the remnant could just be referring to believers and faithful followers. In either case, I think the important note here is not so much 
uh, that the remnant can have these different variations, but understanding that God is bringing everything true, even to those who are his followers. Now, that might scare us a little bit when we think about, because I, I don't know if you guys have had the thought. I know a lot of people um, that I've talked to have wondered and we speculate and we have no idea with all the crazy stuff happening in the world. Is this a judgment? Is this God working? Or is this just a crazy virus that got free and what do we do with it? Uh, I don't know. But what I do know is this, that if God is using this to purify his people, that's a good thing. See, the, the remnant nationally might come under the judgment. The nation itself would be judged. But we know from the progressing generations after this that God has not completely forsaken his people. He just doesn't guarantee in that protection any kind of national preservation. And I want to make that very clear. So our allegiances nationally should not be overly confused with where we are spiritually. Now, I'm not saying that we should not be pro-USA. I am pro-USA. And I thank God that I live in a land where I can worship freely. But I need to understand that if God is moving, my allegiance, first and foremost, is to Jesus Christ. That is my first and foremost allegiance. In Revelation, they have, um, there's a term that, you know, we don't like to spend a lot of time in Revelation for whatever reason, but when you think about judgment, it's impossible not to look at the book of Revelation. And in there, there is a word to the church, or to the seven churches to be more specific, trial. And it talks about the coming trial. And there are seven churches, and there are seven uses of the word conquer. That we will have to conquer, or the churches have to conquer, this trial. When God is setting things straight, when judgment is coming, we are not going to escape the effects of that. And I would contend that the further we are from the plumb line, the more painful it will be. And if our lives are holy, it's going to be less painful. But if our lives are all about that next thing I want, our lives are all about some pressing political issue more important than God himself, if our lives are all about even our kids or whatever it might be, we're going to miss it. And God is going to make sure that we understand where our center needs to be. He wants to make us true. Now, this is not to say that it's a works-based religion. That's not, that's not what I'm arguing at all. All of us are made clean by faith in Christ alone. That's it. I put my faith and trust in Christ and I am set free and I know in heaven I will be with our Lord. Praise God. But as I live a life that claims to be an allegiance 
first and foremost to Jesus Christ, but then live in such a way that all these different avenues of my life do not quite align, I should expect that God's going to come in and true that up. Whether there's judgment or not, that's his job, to discipline his children so that he can get us to where he wants us to be. Which brings in the legacy of sin. Now, I, I talked about, um, you know, spiritual heritage, moral lapses, national judgment, but the legacy of sin, see, Manasseh is going to leave behind another generation, Amon. Son Amon's going to take the throne after 55 years. His time on the throne is so short, it doesn't even warrant an extra sermon in our series. Probably good, right? Okay. I'm going to read, starting in verse 18, 2 Kings 21, starting in verse 18 through the end of this chapter. And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Amon his son reigned in his place. Amon was 22 years old when he began to reign and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Heres of Jotba. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Amon conspired against him, and put the king to death in his house. <clears throat> But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Amon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Amon that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in the tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son reigned in his place. With that, I'm going to put this right back up, and that's really the whole summary of Amon's life. See, Manasseh's legacy of sin continues. The legacy of sin continues. And this goes back to the, the ricochet. His son picked it up. Unfortunately, uh, in this instance, it did pass from generation to generation. That ricocheting that was happening, that was going all over the place, it carried on. And it, it happened so much in its entirety that God gives his son all of two years. And that's it. Gives him only two years. Fortunately, the story is not all bleak. The story is not all bleak. It seems like it. But there's actually a little snippet in that part of your Bible, which is probably not uh, read very often in Second Chronicles, where we find that God's relenting grace will find the humble. God's relenting grace will find the humble. Second Chronicles 33, 10 through 13 leaves us with some important hope. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze, and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entered the favor of the Lord his God, and humbled himself 
greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty. And he heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now you might wonder why wasn't this text in 2 Kings? Because 2 Kings was kind of the judgment text. Right? Why didn't we get this little glimmer? I think because it was incomplete. So when we look at 2 Chronicles 33.10, what we see is Manasseh ignored the prophets. He ignored the word of God. He ignored the coming ju- the judgment. So what happened? God allows king of Assyria come in and take him into captivity. He's in chains. So now he's in chains, shackled, held captive. Hey, I've got an idea. Why don't I try God now? Isn't that tempting? We wait until we're at our absolute bleakest point. God has already pronounced judgment. Judgment's coming. But hey, let's give it a go. And he prays. And he humbles himself. And darn if God didn't press pause. God met him right where he was because God's relenting grace will find the humble. Manasseh, the most evil king in all of history, is allowed to go on because he humbled himself before God. Think about all the things he had done wrong. The child sacrifices. He's into necromancy. You have to like look that up to even figure out what that is. That's like you know trying to work with dead people. He's into omens and false prophets and astrological worship and polytheism. He's setting up a Shira, which is supposed to be the wife god to Yahweh. He is blaspheming God at every turn. He has, if there, was a, if there were 12 commandments, he would have broken them all. He is so out of whack, and yet, when he humbled himself, God is willing to come down and help him. And that's the same for you and I. See, God's relent, relentless grace is available, and we need to humble ourselves before God. We need to humble ourselves before God. Now, some of us today have never trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. See, when we accept Christ as our Savior, that doesn't make all the sin just stop. It doesn't make all of our bad stuff go away, all of our moral lapses without effect. There will still be a ricochet. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and work their way up. But we are forgiven. We are forgiven. And we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ by putting our faith and trust in him. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
If you have never done that, I would encourage you to jot down this phone number, 571-536-2400. Text us. We'd love to engage in the conversation so that you can be assured that you have a personal relationship. Or email us at info at gatewaychurch.org. But we need, to, we need to remember that our choices, our sin, impacts not only us, to those all around us. We need to be right with God. We need to humble ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you do find a way to get to us. You find a way to seek out the humble and to provide forgiveness, to rescue us from our moral lapses. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us to be true, that you would help us to live a life that's holy with our first allegiance to you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.